Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Scripture in Black and White. Uh, I'm Anthony Walker here with Bobby Harrington. Uh, Bobby, how are you? Anthony, I'm doing well. So glad to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to this podcast. And I've got to tell you and all of our listeners, I really enjoyed being able to do these podcasts with you. I counted a real privilege and honor, so thank you. Likewise, likewise. So in the last uh, episode, we began uh, walking through, or the last couple of episodes, we've been walking through, you know, how we got the Bible. Um, there are so many who are curious as to why, you know, how it came to be, why it is something that we need to follow. So many preachers and pastors and uh, Christians are always quoting scripture, using scripture, Okay, how do we know, you know, that it's real? How do we know this is the word of God? We've been dealing with that. And so in today's episode, we're going to deal with the collection of the books of the Bible because uh, the Bible is a book of books. And so, you know, with, when you look back over historical documentation and look back over these historical books, I'm certain there were a lot of writings at the time. So how did we get this collection? Um, walk us or start us off with that, uh, Bobby. Yeah, great. So uh, in case uh, you did not have a chance to join us in our last couple of episodes, I'm going to just refer to a couple of things that we talked about more in depth previously. Uh, so you're welcome to go back to those earlier episodes. Uh, what we found is that Jesus... Uh, when he comes on the scene, he speaks authoritatively. And uh, he, uh, the historical Jesus, says that his teachings are God's word. And not only are they God's word, but they're the authoritative interpretation of what we call the Old Testament scriptures or the Hebrew scriptures. So that um, by the time of Jesus, there's a collection of these writings uh, the Hebrew writings, Jesus claims to be the authoritative interpreter of them, that they are reliable and that they speak about him. And then he gives his teachings to the apostles. And so the main criteria uh, after the apostles die out for scripture is that it be the apostolic teaching, uh, so related to an apostle of Jesus, and the Hebrew scriptures. There's a council in Jemna, uh, which is in ancient Israel, uh, that was held around 90 AD, about 20 years after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And uh, uh, once Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, then the Jewish people sort of were fragmented. And so they had a council in Jemna in, in uh, 90 AD, and they just they authorized or they said, here are the books that we have considered inspired. So the earliest Christians took the apostles' teachings and they took the Old Testament or the Hebrew teachings and they put them together uh, to be the books of, of the Bible. Now, uh, the formation of these books into the Bible, we'd like to dive into that a little more deeply. And the concept is, is called the canon. Now, the canon is an old word that means the rule or measuring stick uh, for what's authoritative. In fact, the word canon 
is a technical word that means the list of books contained in scripture, the list of books recognized as worthy to be included in the sacred writings. So, of course, these are the books, the authoritative books of the Bible. Um, so that's a little bit of the background, uh, Anthony. And let me just pause there uh, so that we can talk about maybe some of the questions that people have about that. Because I know uh, when I came to faith as a young uh, adult at, at the University of Calgary, as I've shared in previous podcasts, I had a lot of questions about how do we know the Bible's reliable? How do we know the books the books that people say are in the Bible should be the books in the Bible. And, you know, what about the Catholics? I mean, the Catholics have 14 other books uh, in the Apocrypha that the Protestants don't have. And so these are, these are uh, I think, honest, legitimate questions that people have today. It's interesting, you know, when you talk about how you came to faith, and, and for me, I was much younger but I faced a crossroads at about the same juncture in my life while I was in college uh, where I'm asking just the basic question that you pointed out. How do we know this is all real? Um, you know, how how can I trust this book that we have? Uh, it's a collection of books. It was uh, formatted. It was arranged by, you know, not myself. So obviously there were some people who had to make decisions on those things, as well as, and, and this was, I believe, in one of my early uh, Hebrew classes um, where we talked about the Apocrypha. And so it is, okay, wow, well, what about these other uh, books? And then you begin to consider how, uh, and I think we talked about this a little bit on one of our episodes a couple of weeks ago, on, you know, the, the Mormons, they use uh, some different writings yeah, uh, as you pointed out, the Catholics they use some different writings. So it's okay. How do we come to a conclusion that okay, the Bible, the collection of books that we have as the the Holy Bible that we have now, the canon as as you've uh, mentioned, um, how do we get that? That's that's really one of my first questions. How do we get the canon, and then we can start to move into some of those other um, other deals as well. So let's uh, try to go back in time to the first century and uh, try to wrap our minds around these things. So when the first century comes to an end, uh, all the books that are a part of the New Testament have been written. Uh, within these churches at the end of the first century, uh, we, we know what they thought about things. For example, we have Clement of Rome, who writes around 90 AD and and he talks about the churches and he talks about the scriptures. And the key element is the apostolic writings. So let me read to you a quote from Michael Kruger, who's probably one of the world's leading experts on the formation of the canon. And I think he describes it really well for us when he, he tells us the mindset they had. Here's what he says. Early Christians had a high view of the apostolic office viewing the apostles as the very mouthpiece of Christ himself. Thus, any document containing apostolic teachings would have been received as an authoritative written text. And that's where it begins. And we saw that uh, according to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself said that, that they were to take his teachings 
and teach others. And we saw in, in early on in the book of Acts, the history of the early church, in Acts chapter 2, it says the earliest believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the idea is apostolic teaching in writing is the authoritative teaching of Jesus. Now that becomes important uh, not in the first century because it's not really challenged in the first century <clears throat> in terms of a significant thing, um, but it's definitely challenged in the second century. So let me just mention a couple of things, a couple of the challenges that actually end up being good because there's other books that start to be written. So for example, uh, there's a guy named Marcion and he's a popular teacher, but he rejects parts of the Old Testament and he rejects parts of what the apostles said. Uh, he writes somewhere around 150 AD and they wanna reject him as a, as a heretic. So the church leaders at that time say, hey, he, he's, he's not good. He uses a knife to cut away the scriptures that do not conform with his opinions. <laughs> and he uh, perverts the meanings of them. So they start to say, no, 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 that guy, don't listen to him. He does not, and this is the key expression, he does not uh, carry on with the apostolic teachings. And then, uh, and this is later in the second century, so later in the 200s and into the 300s, you've got uh, Gnostic Gospels, uh, like there's, we're going to talk about the Gospel of Thomas. Some people have heard about that, which by the way, you should read it. Because if you if you hear about it and you're wondering about it, first of all, it's written a long time after the New Testament documents. It's totally different literature and crazy stuff. And the best way to convince you of that is for you to read it. But uh, it comes then later on. And so <clears throat> what we find is uh, by by 180, the earliest Christians are saying, "Hey, here here are the." books of the apostles that we've been based on and that we've been following. And there's other books out there and they can be helpful, but these books are the books for us. So uh, most people go back to a guy named Irenaeus and uh, around 180 AD, uh, you see that the, the concept of <clears throat> these are the books that we need to be following. And uh, uh, even even back then, it's it's very similar to the later list. So it goes back to to about 180, uh, where it first begins, but it's not formally codified until about 367. So let me let me go back to to something interesting that you said um, about you know one of the other writings that had taken place uh, not at the time or close to the time, but sometimes after the the Gospel of Thomas. Um, and, and, and you said uh, you should read it. And I think that's interesting because uh, as we begin to investigate, um, because of your confidence, and I have similar confidence in God's word as being um, the you know, inspired word of God, I'm not intimidated by uh, Christians or, or, or even uh, those who are seeking or trying to find their way read some of the stuff, go look at it. And so you said that like, hey, I, I encourage you to read it as you investigate because it will show itself not to be an inspired uh, work of, of God. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, <clears throat> like the quality and the type of literature it is is so different uh, than the New Testament's uh, documents that, that right away you can see it. Anthony, let me give you a little bit of story. So um, when my son was in high school, he had a lot of confidence in Scripture. And one of the things that happened is that uh, he, he had a friend whose father was very intimidated by the fact that uh, my son was good friends with his son. And uh, he knew that I was a, you know, a preacher of a church and all of that. And he had a strong antagonism to Christianity. Something must have happened to him years ago. So he felt like he needed to set out to uh, prove to his son that Christianity wasn't true. And so he searched the internet and he came across this Gospel of Thomas. And uh, uh, he told his son about the Gospel of Thomas and uh, uh, told his son that he should challenge my son on why doesn't my son accept the Gospel of Thomas? And at that time, Chad was not trained with this kind of stuff, and it rattled him. And uh, one day I just said, well, let's just read it. Like, <laughs> let's read the Gospel of Thomas. And then not only let's read it, but let's realize it was written like a hundred years after the real, real Gospels. And it's obviously this fake fraud. And everybody in the ancient church, like in the 200s, all the, the people following the, the teaching of the apostles, they said it was fake. And it never, it was never uh, a rival or considered a, a part of uh, Christianity for the mainstream of Christianity it was actually the Gnostic sects, uh, and um, it was it was just rejected back then. So one of the things that I just tell people is just go ahead and read it. Once you read it, it's going to be it's it's a great education uh, for you. It's not very long, uh, so yeah. I just recommend that. That is that is highly confident in in God's word to say, hey, go go ahead. I, I encourage you to read it so that you can see for yourself. And that's a part of what we're trying to do even with this podcast is giving you resources, giving you um, uh, biblical teaching, scriptural teaching, but also allowing you to investigate along with us. I've shared uh, in some of these episodes, um, you know, I'm as much of a student of, of listening to, oh, okay, I, I see what's going on here. And it is helping um, my ministry, my faith, we pray that it's doing the same for those of you who are listening. So, so as we continue, um, Bobby, we, I think we left off um, right at about 180 or so in looking at some of these documents. You've mentioned that um, one of the things that you've looked at in your research and in uh, some of your study is not just looking at the document itself, because you can find several different writings around the same time or similar, but looking at what the early church even referred to. So if they were uh, very devout and very earnest and serious in following the apostles' doctrine, uh, that can be somewhat of a measuring stick to say, well, hey, they didn't even accept some of these other documents. Yes. So what happens is that coming into the 200s with Marcion, uh, and then later on, there's these other writings uh, by the 200s, is that they started to say, hey, from the very beginning, we were established by the apostles teaching. 
And that's the basis of the inspired books for us. And so what they did is they they said, well, here's here's three criteria. And let me just tell you what the three are, Anthony. Uh, it used to be that Christians knew this kind of stuff, by the way, that we're talking about. Like it was common among scholars uh, in previous decades and centuries to know how we got the Bible. And so I think it's really important for us to assert these things. So they had three criteria. Uh, here are the criteria. First off, the book had to have been written by an apostle or by the associate of an apostle. So you've got the apostle Paul, you've got Matthew, you've got Mark who writes for Peter, you've got Luke who writes for Paul. So it's apostolic in terms of the author or they're the uh, companion of the apostle writing for the apostles. The second thing is it had to have taught what was called the orthodox faith of the apostles. So it had to have taught what the apostles taught from the beginning. And then thirdly, it had to have been widely accepted in the churches by the in the in the beginning. So apostolic teaching, widely accepted teaching the apostolic faith. There's an expression that they would use, uh, everywhere, always, and by all. So when they when they were wondering uh, about, is this the authoritative uh, documents, the authoritative books, they went back to the apostles. They went back to the earliest days, and they went back to what everybody believed in the beginning. And then that became sort of just the mindset and the norm. It was to keep these teachings uh, very close and sacred to them. So we see that uh, with the list uh, associated with Irenaeus around 180. And then between 250 and 367, they're, they're further clarifying and just getting this really solid list so that by 367, they just want everybody uh, to know that these are the New Testament books these are the, the writings of the apostles. These are to be the norm of the church. Uh, again, let me just quote from uh, Michael Kruger uh, about this when he says, the canon was like the uh, sprouting, seedling sprouting from the soil of early Christianity. In other words, the apostles' teachings, although it was not fully a tree that everybody said these books and only these books until the fourth century. And uh, again, it's the idea that it it has to uh, it has to go back to the foundations of the early church. Mm. So I, I'm just going back over that quote again. The canon was like a seedling sprouting from the soil of early Christianity. Uh, so this was a and this was taken care of. Um, during the council as they began to say, okay, wait a minute, after the destruction, we, we've got to go back to the roots. We've got to go back and look at this. So, you know, as they look at the seed and examine the roots, they begin to say, okay, let's look at these books. And the other thing I wanted to underline that you mentioned was the uh, everywhere, what was everywhere, always, and by all. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, Anthony, let me uh, uh, jump in also and address something here that becomes very important. Um, and it's something that 
uh, I experienced in my graduate study that I wasn't sure how to answer at first. Uh, when I was uh, working on a master's in philosophy at the University of Calgary, I uh, got into a discussion with one of my professors about something that the Bible teaches. And uh, he was a, a Roman Catholic person. And he said something to me at that time that I wasn't sure how to answer. And then, uh, uh, you know, he, he forced me to really do my research at a deeper level. Here's what he said to me. He said, uh, Bobby, if you trusted the Roman Catholic Church to give you the Bible, why don't you trust the Roman Catholic Church to interpret the Bible? That's what he said to me because I was uh, talking to him about there's no authorization in the New Testament uh, that uh, church leaders would have to be celibate like Catholic priests are. And so that threw me off and I ended up needing to do further research. And so what I did is uh, I contacted um, a man who was an expert in the second and third centuries. His name is Everett Ferguson. And uh, I was able to call him and uh, at that time and talk to him on the phone. And he was very helpful to me. He pointed to a work by uh, a guy named Oscar Coleman, uh, <clears throat> uh, who wrote a, a, a piece called The Tradition. And uh, Coleman had pointed out that there was an apostolic tradition. In fact, the tradition itself is embedded in scripture itself. You see the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, for example, talking about uh, the traditions I passed on to you, uh, and that these traditions, the apostolic traditions, were the 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 um, foundation of the early church, even in the apostolic writings. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, here's what the gospel is, uh, it's worded in such a way that it was probably one of the earliest traditions uh, of the church, like within the church in Jerusalem, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. It would have been this apostolic tradition that's embedded in scripture written by the apostles, but there are sayings and practices that the apostles held to. Now, you might be wondering, well, why are you bringing this up, Bobby? Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is that the church is established by the apostolic writings. The uh, later councils are only recognizing those apostolic writings. They're not making them authoritative. And uh, a very important conversation between Protestants, those who just accept the New Testament uh, as an authority and the final authority over the Roman Catholic beliefs, this is a really important uh, topic. So I'd like to, to read from a guy named F.F. Bruce about this, but let me just pause there, Anthony, in case you think that um, there's a clarification that might be needed for people with a Roman Catholic sure. background before so, I dive in. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go over that last piece again. So you're saying that uh, the apostles teaching, I'm, I'm trying to get your quote uh, right here, the apostles teaching uh, helped to formulate the church uh, at the time. That was the kind of the founding principle Jesus said uh, for them to continue. And then at the day of Pentecost, as the church uh, is established, uh, they continued in the apostles doctrine, doctrine being 
teaching and this doctrine that was given to the apostles was not them uh, sitting around and coming up with something. This was handed to them by Jesus himself. So yes. from Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to the church, right? Yes. So okay. what happens is the, the later church, say the council, I think it's the Council of Galatia in 367, they're only acknowledging what was believed from the beginning. They are not creating something to be true at that point. Mm -hmm. They're actually only acknowledging what's been true for centuries. Let me read to you from F.F. Bruce, uh, who's a British scholar who uh, uh, commented and states the truth on this. He says, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and general apostolic authority, direct or indirect. He goes on and says, what these councils did was not impose something new on the Christian communities, but to codify what was already present with general practice within those communities. So they're acknowledging they were, the church was founded by the apostolic teaching. The church doesn't then create this thing. The church doesn't give us the Bible. The church, uh, and, and by the way, in 367, the church then is not the Roman Catholic Church. You don't have popes and all that stuff. It's just the ancient church of that time is acknowledging uh, where it came from earlier. Wow. Okay. That that was that that makes it uh, crystal clear, or or in other terms, black and white for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Script, scripture in black and white is needs to be built around things that are black and white. Yeah. Anthony, um, let me, uh, I had the privilege of uh, studying under uh, a man named Clark Pinnock at Regent College in Vancouver, and he was an expert on this. And, and uh, in his work, he has a great line about this. Uh, and, and why it's so important, Anthony, is that if scripture is the final authority, that's an authority over every church tradition, whether uh, the ancient church, uh, which again, the Roman Catholic Church, in terms of their distinctive doctrines, comes much later than 367. Uh, you know, you don't even have your first pope until 606 AD with uh, Boniface becomes the first pope. But wherever, whatever church authority exists, derives its authority from following the apostolic teaching. So Clark Pinnock put it this way, he said, by accepting the norm of scripture, the church at that time, that would have been in 367, declared that there was a standard outside of herself to which she intended to be subject for all time. See, the church can fall into error and needs the Bible to measure herself by. In turn, the church serves the canon by continuing in the truth and faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And so for us, this becomes very important because um, we believe that the apostolic teaching is our standard and that we're to be subject to it. Uh, I, was, I met with somebody on Saturday. Uh, no, it wasn't actually Saturday. It was a couple days before that. We had lunch together, and he was asking about Scripture. And I said, really the right way to approach Scripture 
is uh, the way sometimes people talk about in the United States following the Constitution. To be strict, to be a strict constitutionalist means that you want to understand and apply the original writings of the Constitution as the people who wrote it understood it to be. Well, the same way we approach Scripture, we want to follow what the apostles said. We want to uh, adhere to it as they intended, as best we can tell, and to make that our final authority. Praise God. Praise God. Yeah, the, the, the Word of God uh, is, uh, for the church, uh, the final authority. So, so we're walking through, Bobby, um, and we've got, we, we're just steps away from a uh, uh, timeline, so to speak. We're steps away from the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and then the writings uh, that subsequently take place. And, and now we're getting, you know, a few, few years closer to where we are uh, in modern times. So with this uh, collection, uh, and I don't know if this is in this uh, talk that we're going to do or if we'll dig into it even more a little bit later, but what does that do with some of the other writings that were taking place at a similar time, in particular um, writings like the Apocrypha? Yeah, so um, now the Apocrypha covers the period from the end of the New Testament I'm sorry, the end of the Old Testament, typically around, most people perceive it around 400 BC, mm-hmm. up until the time of Jesus. And uh, these books were looked at as books that were good books. They're, they're helpful to, to read from and learn from. But um, in the old, they're never part of the Old Testament. They're never part of the apostolic teaching. And uh, as we've said, um, the early church was based on the apostolic teaching, but the, they were books that were known in in the early church. They were books that were known amongst the Jewish people. And uh, to just give a short description, and I think this might be helpful for our listeners, uh, when the Protestant reformers came along in the 1500s, and they objected to the teachings of the church that evolved, and I, I say the church that evolved, Uh, I I want to describe it this way. What you find happening uh, after, um, say, 500 into the 600s, 700s, you see that the established church back then starts to move away from the apostolic teaching in some areas. So, for example, they start practicing infant baptism. They start giving authority beyond what the apostles described to bishops and archbishops and things like this. And they start to practice things that uh, the New Testament does not teach. Uh, Practices like penance and indulgences. So penance would be uh, the blood of Jesus does not cover all my sins. I'm going to have to do extra work to take away my sins. And and, uh, the concept of indulgences and that, that priests can can appeal to uh, the saints who have died to give extra favor to you and and for things that you've done. And well, what happens with Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers is that they're protesting. They're protesting to the practices of the church that are not based on the 
apostles' teachings. And so what happens is in the Council of Trent, it's a Roman Catholic Council of Trent in the 1500s, then they say that they want to use the Apocrypha to be authority. Now, in fairness to them, they never put the Apocrypha on the same level as the Old Testament or the New Testament, but to justify some of their doctrines, uh, they start to quote and use the Apocrypha. And of course, the Protestants say, wait, that was never part of the apostolic teaching in the beginning, and those are books that we are not going to follow. Those are, those are teachings that we are, you know, we're not going to be subject to because we don't think that that was ever God's intent that we follow those books in the same way. And so what you have then is from that time, from the 1500s, when a Roman Catholic is going to give you the Bible, it's going to include the Apocrypha uh, as, as you've got the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Apocrypha. Very, very clear. Thank you for that, um, um, Bobby. So you all have heard uh, and hopefully you've learned uh, quite a bit today uh, as we deal with how we, you know, how, how we got the canon, which uh, is, is the rule, as Bobby has helped us to understand uh, the Bible that we have uh, today. But I want you to hang on even longer on this episode because we've got some uh, more information to share as well. Go ahead. Hey, Anthony, before uh, we're, Anthony and I are going to talk to you about some supplementary material we're going to add into the session. Anthony, if I can, um, I'd like to mention just some more about uh, Roman Catholic teachings because uh, the Roman Catholic people, they're good people. They have so many truths that they emphasize that are good things. And and uh, it's difficult to actually have this conversation, but it's really important because as I learned, the church did not give us the Bible, but the Bible created the church. The apostolic teachings created the church. And then <clears throat> the church for all time should be subject to the apostolic teaching, meaning that uh, Catholic doctrines and the Apocrypha will not be our standard. And um, because we want to be people of truth, let me mention some Catholic things, uh, why we, we would not follow those and why we think they're, they're not right for God's people who follow the apostolic word. I'm just going to mention five real quick. The first is the Pope. The idea that somebody can speak like an apostle when he's speaking ex cathedra, like a pope. Like there's nothing in the teaching of the apostles about that, uh, that they anticipated a pope or anything. And of course, the idea of, of, a, <clears throat> of a pope like that comes uh, many centuries after the New Testament is written. Uh, purgatory, there's no passages in the apostolic writings of the Old Testament that talk about going to purgatory to pay for your sins because Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. Uh, penance and indulgences. Again, there's nothing in the apostolic teaching about human works that can be done to, uh, to help cover your sins or the sins of your relatives. And then the idea of a celibate priesthood. There's Again, there's nothing like that in the apostolic teaching. In fact, when uh, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy uh, 
or when he writes to Titus in in First uh, Timothy, he talks about establishing leaders in the church, and Titus talks about establishing leadership for the local church. Uh, one of the qualities is that the the elders or the overseers, the bishops that you appoint, they they must be men who have raised children, and that the the children demonstrate that they're actually good leaders because they were good leaders in the home. And so the idea of, of depriving people of marriage uh, for some kind of church leadership, again, nothing in the apostolic teaching. And then the whole idea of Mary, of somehow Mary uh, being a co-redeemer with Jesus or something like that. There's nothing in the New Testament like that. Now in the New Testament, it does talk about, it records how Mary says, all generations will consider her blessed for uh, giving birth to Jesus. And that's true. And she was a, obviously uh, a great woman of faith, but there's no way that she's a co-redemptrix of Christ or anything like that. And um, because uh, we believe that God wants us to follow the apostolic writings, I just think it's really important to delineate and say those things, Anthony. Thank you for that. Thank you, Bobby. Um, listen, you all, um, as we tell you each time, um, if you would like to get more information and more resources, be sure to go to renew.org. Uh, in particular, if you're looking for information about more information about our podcast, uh, renew.org slash media, and you'll find our landing page there uh, that will give information uh, about any supplemental documents that we have uh, that we refer to sometimes for those who are just listening to us via podcast. We may refer to slides and things. Uh, so you'll want to do that as well for our YouTube viewers. You'll get to see all of that stuff as well. Uh, so be sure to uh, click that information and you'll get more. Uh, but as I introduced and, and I want Bobby to, to do even more, uh, we've got a little bit of supplement here at yeah. the end of this episode. Bobby, lead us into that, if you will. Yeah. So, Anthony, one of the things that you and I do on occasion is we're on the Jason Whitlock show, and he'll often add in stuff at the end uh, for those who are interested, and we're doing that today. So let me just set it up a little bit, and it'll be an extra 35 minutes for those who would like to listen to it. Craig Evans is one of the world's leading experts on uh, – things like the archaeology of Jesus, the manuscript evidence for Jesus, the early church. Uh, he's an author and editor of over 80 books and hundreds of articles, scholarly articles. He's taught at Cambridge, Oxford, Durham, Yale, and other places like that. And we did an interview with him about the um, how we got the Bible. And uh, we're going to let you watch it or listen to it if, if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, it's an interview that I did with Daniel McCoy, who's the editorial director at Renew.org and the author of numerous books and articles himself. And here's why we're adding this in. Many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman and Dan Brown and the Gospel of Thomas and uh, these things. And we just wanted you to hear from Craig Evans himself a conversation about how uh, some people have said that these things undermine the authority of, of uh, the canon of the Bible, but they don't when you really know the history. So we want to encourage you now to listen to Craig Evans and what he says about these things. And then we will join together again next time 
and we'll talk actually about the manuscripts, how we got the manuscripts, how we know they're reliable. So Anthony, thank you. And we turn things over to Craig Evans and the interview we did with him. Yes, of course. Well, uh, skeptics, uh, you know, philosophers, skeptics, and so on, objectors, uh, you know, just out of principle, will say, how do you know the manuscripts are accurate? There have been a whole bunch of copies. But then when you get a textual critic who's actually been trained at Princeton Seminary, trained by the great uh, textual critic Bruce Metzger, and I'm talking about now Bart Ehrman, and he brings out a popular book in 2005 called Misquoting Jesus, and and misuses all kinds of statistics to really shock and frighten uh, the naive public. Uh, tragically, a lot of trained clergy who ought to have known better and, and should have been able to see right through that smoke. And so he's saying, look, there's so many mistakes in the manuscripts. Uh, who knows, you know, if what we have now you know, there's this bookcase right behind me. I've got two or three Greek New Testaments. Uh, I can pull pull off the shelf and open it up and say, okay, here's Matthew in a modern Greek version. And I could pull off the shelf, uh, say an English translation, say this English translation is based on this Greek, critical Greek text. And so here's Bart Ehrman saying, yeah, well, you know, we don't know if the Greek of Matthew or Mark or Luke or whatever we don't know if it's what they actually wrote. And the funny thing is, is I don't think he actually believes that because in his scholarly work, and I've got some, you know, in this other room over here where my library is, I've got several of his books and there's no hint anywhere in his other publications, scholarly publications that he is uh, that skeptical, no hint at all. And so you'll see in his own work, he'll quote the text and say, it's very important to understand this word and that word. This is what it means. Well, that wouldn't mean anything if you don't really know that's the original text. Well, he his whole career operates on the assumption that we, in fact, do have the text. But on the popular side, that you get this shock and awe, and I think it sells books and it gets him on late night TV and he can make comments. So anyway, Okay, fine. Let's just throw that out and say, okay, here's a textual critic that has raised questions. How do we know? Well, here's how we know. We have a lot of manuscripts and we can compare them. These horizontal comparisons, you know, we have columns. Here's the text, same passage in this manuscript, same passage in that one, same passage here. We can compare them. When a scribe makes a mistake, he's a scribe, he made a mistake there. The other scribes don't make that mistake. They make different ones elsewhere. And so if you've got dozens of manuscripts, and as a matter of fact, we have thousands, but if you have dozens of old manuscripts, you can easily identify the mistakes. And in fact, you in some cases, you don't need any other manuscript. The mistake is so obvious if you can read the Greek okay. Another thing that people don't realize, most scribes proofread their work. And when they proofread it, they catch the mistakes. And so the correction, if you want to call it that, the variant written in the margin is by the same guy. He realizes I've slipped up. I wrote the word wrongly. Oh my God, I left the word out. And then he writes it in the margin. Well, these things all get tabulated. They're all counted. And so it has an inflationary effect on how many scribal variants, errors, and so on. 
The other thing too is unlike English, Greek, you know, your clauses can, the word order can be a little bit different, the nouns and adjectives, whether or not to use a definite article, the, uh, you know, we don't do this. We don't put the's in front of a person's name. You know, you're not the Bobby. Well, maybe you are in some circles, but uh, you know, in no. Greek, that's common. And, and, and so some scribes, you know, it's like a feeling, well, we don't need to say the Peter here. And so it disappears. Some manuscripts have it. Well, again, and another thing that happens in manuscripts, it says Jesus, and somebody puts Lord, kurios, right in front. Or somebody says Christ right after Jesus, or both words are used. This inflates the number of variants, but it's not, these are not real changes. It doesn't leave us wondering, I wonder what the text originally said. And so that's part of it. But here's something else. And gentlemen, this is very important. And all you people who are listening, take notes right now. This is something that Bart Ehrman doesn't bring up. I'm not sure at that time he even knew about it. But what studies show is that the earliest scribes, right on in well into the second century and beyond, they're not Christians. They're professional scribes. They have no motivation to change the text. They have no doctrinal sensitivity, no Christological concerns. They're not making a copy of Matthew thinking, oh, I need to bump up the Christology here. And the, the other thing, there's an anachronism here. When these scribes are making copies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, Romans, whatever we're talking about in the late first century on into the second century, even a Christian scribe, how does he know how to change the text? He doesn't know what Nicaea is going to decide in 325. How does he know the text he's copying is going to become part of the Bible? So there's this enormous anachronism at work as though first and second century copyists have fourth and fifth century knowledge. It's really quite silly. They are simply paid to copy accurately and scribes who write legibly and don't make mistakes get paid more. They have every incentive and motive to do it right. And when, the, and when most of these guys are professionals, and they're not pious Christians who are thinking, oh, I'm reading the text devotionally and I want to bump up Jesus's, you know, powers or his divinity or something. They're not thinking that. They're mindlessly just copying what they see. And then they proofread it to make sure they didn't make any mistakes. And so this whole idea that uh, there's some kind of nefarious, orthodox, corrupting influence going on, that a bunch of fundamentalists want to change the text so it reads right. And so this is Dan Brownism. This is Da Vinci Codeism. And so you end up uh, with a text that's orthodox by the time we get to the third or fourth century, and it's not the text that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote. That is the stuff of nonsense. That, that, the only person that should be proud of that is Dan Brown. Mm. Dr. Evans, I'm showing some pictures of these uh, uh, manuscripts of the uh, papyri from your book. Um, this uh, uh, is a uh, fragment. Uh, it's the John Rylands fragment. Um, I believe this may be the oldest or thought to be the oldest copy of uh, a New Testament fragment. Is that correct? Yeah, it probably is. Uh, you, we need to make it crystal clear. 
I mean, I've looked at it. It's in our film, Fragments of Truth. I'm, you know, right there next to it, looking at it. Uh, I think there's a little uh, card when you walk into the room. At the, it, this is in Manchester, England, Northern England. Uh, it's the John Rylands uh, Museum and Library. And so you see that, and it says it dates it to about 125 AD. Now, we don't really date papyri that precisely. You really can't do that. Um, if a document has a date written on it, well, then you can. But, uh, and, that, and, and sometimes New Testaments do. They're not real old ones, but we do have some uh, handwritten uh, New Testaments that actually have a date on it. But that's pretty rare, and, not, and that doesn't apply to any of these old fragments. And so the handwriting gives us an indication of when this likely was written out. And you're looking at right now on the screen one side of it. That's two-sided. It could be flipped over and there's Greek on the other side. These are pieces of a few verses from John chapter 18. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. If you look at the second line, it says Udena. On the second line, you can clearly say Udena. That's no one, uh, no one or nothing. And then you see the Hinna. That means in order that, and then the ho, the, and then the first letter, the letter L, which is the first letter in the word logos. In order that the word, which, and I'm, I'm filling in because I do know the text, then you go down to the third line, a pen, and you see the pen, which Jesus spoke, and then you have signifying, and you know, and, and you can take that like a puzzle piece of a puzzle and put it right on top of the whole thing and, and you know exactly it's in the top left hand corner of a text and we know where it fits well the correct way of referring to its date would to say something like this it's probably first half second century so it could be 125 it could be 115 it could be 145 the best thing to say is just first half second century and yes probably is the oldest fragment of the greek new testament now when do you date the gospel of john uh you know i i still tilt toward the traditional date of about 90. i i date the synoptics earlier like like we were saying like early 60s early to middle 60s but i still hold to the date of john you know some argue that john is pre-70 i'm open to that but uh, I haven't given a whole lot of thought to it. So this could mean then that this, this is an actual copy or a copy of a copy of John. It could be that yeah. close. Now, I believe the autographs lasted a long time. And so you could have second generation copies made well into the second century. Because I think the autographs us? lasted a long time. Will you talk to us about that now? Because in the last 10 years, that's one of the areas where you've really made biblical scholarship aware. Actually, you probably started working on it 10 years ago. I think for a lot of biblical scholars is brand new knowledge. And that's that libraries of books would last for, you know, they keep them 150, 200, even 300 years. Oh, yeah, I and know. So you mentioned that Tertullian, I think writing somewhere around 200, mentions that he has the original, or that that the originals Paul's uh, of Paul's uh, documents are actually there in Ephesus, and and people could go look at them. Will you talk to us about that and how that vouches for the reliability of of the Gospels and the New Testament documents? 
Yeah, you bet. Uh, this is a fascinating area. When I was a seminary student back in the 70s, uh, we were we were talking about this very topic, uh, manuscripts and, and, and how the originals were written and the way they would be circulated and so on. And I raised my hand and I asked my professor, how long do you think the autographs existed, remained in use and remained in circulation? He said, well, that's an interesting question. I don't know. He said, I, I, I would think at least 10 years, maybe 20 years. And that was his response. And it struck me, oh, okay, that's plausible. And what a modern response. It's like that cheap paperback I bought in the airport and I read, I read the John Grisham thriller and the spine cracked by the time I was finished with it and I threw it away. Yeah, that must have been the way books were back then. Of course, that was totally wrong, but I didn't know that. And then later I became interested in this question. Dan Wallace wrote a paper talking about Tertullian, the very thing that you're referring to is tract called On Prescription, a prescription for heresies, how to deal with heresies. And in chapter 36, he say he complains about uh, heretics who distort and misread Paul. And he says, if you don't believe what I'm saying, you can see the autographs for yourselves. And he lists the places where they are. And he refers to seven, maybe eight of Paul's letters in different locations, Ephesus being one of them. And of course, he's writing, and we think that tractate, uh, Bobby, was probably 190. And so we're talking about letters written in the 50s, early 60s, and then he identifies where they are. And so you're talking about letters that maybe are 135 years old. And what's interesting is when this tract written by Tertullian is translated in English for the first time, it's in the year 1880. The translator's name is Peter Holmes. He comes to this passage and he has a footnote. And he says, well, literally, he just says the autographs. He says it's more likely he's talking about in their original Greek form as opposed to some mutilated translation or something like that. Peter Holmes clearly can't believe that Paul's letters could survive 135 years. It's really interesting. Well, papyri were just beginning to be found. Oxyrhynchus was a few years later, 1896, and we all know what that resulted. By the time of the last dig in 1930, 500,000 pages of papyrus mm. were recovered from Oxyrhynchus, just Oxyrhynchus, thousands more from other places in Egypt. And of course, this material ranged anywhere from, you know, 1,500 years old to 3,000 years old. And, the, and scholars realized this stuff's durable. It isn't tissue paper. It isn't some cheap kind of paper we were producing in the 1800s that turns brown, acid brown, crumbles, falls apart, acid burn. Anyway, uh, the great uh, T.C. Skeet wrote uh, as recently as the 1970s, an article saying, where are we getting this idea that papyrus is a fragile medium? It's tough. It's better than any paper we produce. It's capable of lasting a long time. Well, this began to change some heads. Well, then a scholar, a classicist, ironically, at the school where uh, Bart Ehrman is, Uni University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, he, st he, he, wrote, he started doing research in 2009 and beyond on ancient libraries, and that's what caught my attention. He published an article in 2009, 
in which he said, you know, one of the interesting things I've learned is that books remain in use a long, long time. And he cites some of the evidence. And, and then he and I began to correspond. I said, I'm very interested in that because you know what? The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Bible scrolls were 300 years old, 250, 300 years old when Qumran was destroyed. The youngest Bible scrolls were over 100 years old. They were still in use when Qumran was destroyed. The codices of uh, Europe, uh, you know, the ones we've been talking about, Sinaiticus, uh, but, but Vaticanus and some of these other codices, they were being read in churches for a thousand years. Where's this idea that a book falls apart in 10 years and gets thrown away? Never mind autographs. So I did more research on it, and the ancients talk about autographs of Aristotle, for example, still in circulation 250 years. I don't think they're lying, and I don't think they're stupid. I think they know what they're talking about. They also know you have to take good care of, especially in places that aren't real dry. And so books last hundreds of years. Well, we have proof of it, thanks to archaeology. And uh, 50 libraries were recovered intact, digging at Oxyrhynchus. Unfortunately, the way they dug, they, the stratigraphy wasn't observed all the time, but for four of them, the stratigraphy was. And basically, in a nutshell, what it is, is they find a basket of books, two dozen books thrown out together in a wicker basket, somebody's library, and it's in a fourth or fifth century AD layer, but the books are first and second century as determined by carbon-14 and paleography. This means these books were in use 200, 300 years before being thrown out. And then Herculaneum, buried by the ash of Vesuvius, same thing, the, uh, uh, the Villa of Papyri, as it's called. We've recovered uh, at least 1,200. I think the number is closer to 2,000 now. And thanks to X-ray, computers, MRIs, we're unrolling them digitally because you can't unroll them physically. And that means we can study the paleography. We can see the way the Latin has been written and we can date it accordingly. Do you realize that a whole bunch of these book rolls, when this eruption took place in the year 79 AD, they were 200 and 300 years old and still in use? So when, now we go back to Tertulli and say, you know what? He knew what he was talking about. This is not some apologetic puff. He knew what he was saying. And there's another church father, a Bishop Peter of Alexandria. He says, well, you know, he's, he's writing a Passover homily. And he says, now, according to the best text, this is what it should read. So he's doing textual critic criticism. He says, that's how the original reads in Ephesus, which the faithful venerate. So he's referring, and so the Gospel of John is 200 years old. He's writing about 290. And so the, you can't blow this off now and say, oh, this is just naive Christian apologetic, because the, the pagans, the Greeks and the Romans are saying the same thing. The Christians are saying this, and the archaeological evidence supports it, and the physical properties of the material confirms it. And so we need to stop thinking about copy after copy after copy so that when we come to this fragment of Mark that's in the Chester Beatty Library, which is on the cover of the book, it dates to somewhere in the first half of the third century. It is 210 to 240 AD. Okay? Bart Ehrman refers to it as though there have been 
20 or 30 generations of copies by the time you get to it. No, there could be just two. Because the autographs likely were still in circulation, at least some of them. And we have from uh, church history, actual stories from Romans, the Roman historians, of deliberately targeting Christian books in the middle of the third century, the beginning of the fourth century, and the middle of the fourth century. So people ask me, okay, if the autographs lasted that long, what happened to them? I think they were deliberately destroyed, confiscated, and destroyed. They weren't thrown out in the trash when they were 20 or 30 years old. No, they didn't just fall apart and get discarded. They would have been deliberately targeted. It took the Romans a while to realize that Christians were big on their books. They realized, oh, wait a minute. They, they don't even know that at first. But not until about the year 250 does it become, do the Roman authorities become aware that books are really important to Christians? So it's not enough to destroy their meeting houses or persecute the people or their leaders. Find their books and burn them. But that's not until about 250. So, uh, Dr. Evans, a person can actually have confidence then, given what you're saying, not only do the documents we have from the second century, uh, early part of the third century, into the fourth century, not only uh, do we have confidence that these are uh, sort of written down accurately, but they they would have been able to compare them with the originals, with the autographs. Yeah, that's, and that's the point I make, uh, Bobby, is that the originals, see, what Bart Ehrman creates the impression is like, oh, here's the original Matthew, and it gets copied one time. And then 10 years later, that copy's fallen apart, and it gets copied again. And so every 10 years, somebody makes a copy of the copy. And so by the time we get to P45, Chester Beattie Papyrus, Gospel Codex, P45, it's 20 generations. See, that's the thinking, and there's no call for that at all. Yeah, and true. so Matthew, if, if the autograph of Matthew remained, in, and I don't know for a fact that it remained in circulation 80 years or 180 years, I don't know. But no one would have thrown it out. It would have been a treasured you know, uh, uh, artifact, it had been valued and venerated, it would have been studied and copied many, many, many times. And the ancients did what we call textual criticism. They'll get a copy and say, there could be some mistakes here. Then they find a good copy and they compare it side by side. Oh, yes, that's the way it reads. Well, the autographs of the apostles would have remained in use this way, either being used to make copies or for comparison purposes. And this is why the text is so stabilized. And, and the evidence for that is look at the Gnostic writings, look at the heretical writings. When we have two or more copies of them, they don't agree. They're wildly different. And so the, uh, the New Testament writings, um, they really stand out as being very skillfully copied and compared, and that's why we have such a stable text. And everyone agrees we know what the text reads in the, about the year 200 because we have so many manuscripts. I argue there's no reason to think that there were any significant changes prior to that. And so the textual tradition, sometimes called the Ausgangs text, the resulting text that we have of the Greek New Testament in the year 200, 
uh, is probably 99% of the autographic texts themselves.